Ram and roll, baby. I'm Kevin Christopher Robles. Today, Grace Getman gets real about the infamous history of the live rams used by Fordham as mascots. Then, Michelle Agaron dishes about Aramark and whether it should remain Fordham's food provider. Finally, Catherine Galliford discusses why it's unfair to college students that gay and bisexual men aren't allowed to donate blood. This is Retrospect, the official podcast of the Fordham Observer. I'm joined now by Grace Getman, Opinions Editor. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. So, Grace, you wrote an article about the Ramsey's dynasty of live Rams that Fordham used to trot out for football games. Can you talk broadly about the background of your piece? Kevin, I just wanted to write about etymology. I did research to find out why uh, Fordham is named Fordham and Rose Hill is named Rose Hill, and I ended up with a conspiracy surviving over 20 rams. I did not ask for this. It's like I stumbled into a rabbit hole, a ram hole, (laughs) that I couldn't get out of. And what exactly were these live rams? Incredible. Glorious. They're emperors, gods among men. These rams would live um, behind Queen's Court at Rose Hill, and the drama would be fit for any sort of reality TV show. These rams were kidnapped, they were sent to slaughterhouses, they got gangrene. Uh, One of them, the first one, was sent to a slaughterhouse, and his head was mounted and sent to the Fordham Ram office from 1928 to at least 1935. These rams were basically Fordham's mascots like the Ramsey's costume we see during sporting events, but actual Rams. Yes, they were the, they embodied the spirit of the school. Um, It was a fairly common tradition for colleges back then. This isn't just one weird trick that Fordham employed. Um, I believe uh, Pomona College had like a stallion, and there's an urban legend that their stallion actually uh, killed our Ram by kicking it. But I wasn't able to verify that one, so I did not include it. But So it sounds like that these rams have sort of had an unfortunate history, or else we wouldn't have stopped trotting them out, right? I mean, one of them got gangrene, Kevin. Their lives weren't that great. So it started in 1925. The last one died in 1978. And so Fordham shifted to uh, having like the mascot in the costume because all of the other rams... Um, You had to have protection from rival teams trying to constantly steal Fordham's rams. You had to have this constant upkeep, and you had to keep on getting new rams because various horrible things would happen to them. Can you talk more about those ram kidnappings? The ram kidnappings surrounded the lives of these rams. Every school, I would say in the tri-state area, every school that Fordham ever had a competition with tried to steal and often did steal these rams. Uh, NYU, Iona, Georgetown, Manhattan, any school you could really think of did manage to take off with these rams. Uh, One time, um, Manhattan College took one of these rams in like the 1960s. And uh, they took it to a farm, and then they dyed it green, which is the school colors of Manhattan. And then they said, 
what do we do with this ram? And so um, one of the one of the student Manhattan students is, um, I think the girlfriend's like father had a connection with the Madison Square Circus, and they actually um, managed to link up. And the Madison Square Circus presented uh, this dye this ram that had been dyed green as an Irish dog act and sent uh, publicity releases to all of the newspapers. So it kind of sounds like the ram kidnappings became sort of a tradition even for the rival schools of Fordham. It was a tradition, and it was even a tradition for Fordham students um, before big games to go to the ram pen and make sure um, it's always called ram hall uh, and make sure that these rams wouldn't be kidnapped. Uh, I remember reading one article Iona College um, managed to steal the ram. They managed to steal it once, and then two weeks later, they came back to steal the ram again. The newspaper, the Fordham Ram, said that a few weeks ago, the ram had had a few uncomfortable moments, but that this time, the boys from New Rochelle, where Iona is, had a few uncomfortable moments. So things could get ugly. We weren't we weren't afraid to protect our dearly beloved Ramses. So. Well, it does sound like there was quite a bit of fun had with the Ram. It also sounds as if this would have been an extremely expensive thing to keep up. Is that why the Ram was eventually retired? Yes. Uh, with health, uh, so that the one that was kidnapped by Manhattan College, it ended up dying of pneumonia because of because it had been dyed green. And so all of these various struggles that the Rams uh, underwent uh, caused significant health and upkeep costs, which is why the university eventually decided to transition them out. So while we all love our Ramsey's costumed mascot, I think there may be some of us in the student body who would appreciate a return for the live Ram. Do you think that that's a practical thing at all? I don't think it's some of us in the student body. I think it's all of us. Our football team might be a little lackluster, but if we had a live ram, we'd scare everyone right off. And uh, you you have a ram, you could have them uh, graze on the various quad grasses. It's something that would be ecologically friendly and could even pay for itself. So do you think that the school will go for the return of a live ram if the students push for it? I think it would be a mistake if they didn't. So how do you think students can advocate for the return of the live ram? I think uh, student groups should form. Uh, we have various clubs on campus. I don't see why we can't have a ram club. Uh, petitions should float around. Uh, we should continue to advocate for these live rams in our newspapers with the Fordham Observer joining the Fordham Ram and it's live ram advocacy and i think with popular pressure we can justice can begin to be done once more any final thoughts ram and roll baby grace thanks for joining us thank you for having me joining me now is michelle agaron who wrote about aramark thanks for joining us thanks for having me so michelle what was your article about So my article was inspired by, first of all, the controversy that happened in NYU. So what happened with Aramark in NYU was that they cut their ties with Aramark because of a racially insensitive menu that had watermelon water during Black History Month. So that was, 
as you can imagine, very, you know, I don't even know how to describe it, but there was there was something terribly wrong with that menu. And added on to the fact that people were already protesting the fact that Airmark has ties to prison systems, private prison systems, that was pretty much the final straw, and they cut ties with Airmark. So basically my article was trying to look into why Fordham is still paired with Airmark and what's preventing them from cutting ties the same way. Can you go over the history of Fordham's involvement with Airmark? Prior to Airmark, we had Sodexo, but the reason we changed was because it was just, as Demi Yon, the contract liaison, said, there were a lot of kind of benefits to changing to Airmark, and one of those benefits was that their communication was better, and Airmark really looks into the community and what they need. So the fact that Airmark, they had an ability to serve to a school that has a bunch of different students from different backgrounds. So that was one of the reasons. And of course, as I said before, the communication was better. Um, But we started kind of working with Airmark seven years ago. And since then, we've been working with them. But there have been some incidents that have happened since we started working with them. Can you speak about those incidents? What exactly happened? So there was a rat, or a mouse, I guess you can call it, um, found in one of the salad containers two years ago. Um, This was actually a report by Lily Brams. Um, She's no longer at the school, but she was here freshman year, and she was just looking through the salad, putting her tongs in to get some salad, and she found a dead mouse, a dead baby mouse, in the salad, and she reported it. The people didn't even know it was there. It got in there by accident, and needless to say, she did not eat from there for the rest of the year. She had her mom pack her literal containers of food every single time because she didn't want to eat from the dining hall anymore. So that happened. Um, and also, as Demignon told me, I asked him if there were any more incidents with mice or anything. And he said that there were some spottings of mice scuttling across the floor. But otherwise, there haven't been any actually, you know, actual rats in the food since then. That's good to hear. Yeah, definitely good to hear. But of course, Fordham hasn't been the only place that Aramark hasn't been serving sufficiently or where quality control hasn't been the best. Yeah, there um, have been a lot of incidents in private prisons. So the two that I wrote about in my article, um, there was one prison where maggots were found in the food. So that was a terrible incident. And there was a second one where basically food was served from the trash to the inmates. And that was found out later. But basically someone from Aramark was like telling the inmates to just take the food out of the trash and serve it. So even against the protests of these inmates who were serving the people um, this food, they did it anyway. So those were two specific incidents that I looked into that Aaron Mark was involved in. Can you talk about why Fordham is maintaining Aaron Mark as its food distributor, even through all these incidents? I think a lot of it has to do with the sense that it's there aren't many other providers, at least that's what I've been told. There aren't many other providers that work with the kind of school that we have here. So for example, NYU is very similar in the sense that there are so many different people from different places and, and Aramark has the capabilities to be able to serve people here and the huge community that we have. So a lot of it is just practicality, but also I think maybe there just aren't many options, and that's why we're still stuck with them. The reason why we moved away from Sodexo was because of a lack of food options for a diverse student population. But it sort of sounds as if, from the article, you mention an incident where the halal food is cooked on the same grill as all the other foods, so there's no real way to tell whether or not that food has been contaminated. It doesn't sound as if Aramark is doing what it's supposed to be doing. Is Fordham doing anything about this at all? 
So I asked about this when I was talking to Deming Yan, and he said that they are trying to do something about it. Um, they first of all introduced prepackaged halal food, so that's a thing that they're doing. And they're also working on making a space in McGinley Center in Rose Hill, where they're opening up a new space for the dining hall or the dining space and retail space. So they're trying to make some areas available for that. And in terms of kosher food, which is also something that kind of goes hand in hand, I talked to him about it and he said that they're trying to introduce that. They need more space here in Lincoln Center, which they haven't been able to get yet. And it probably won't be here for a long time because they're working so hard on the McGinley Center in Rose Hill. So for now, we're not going to get those options in the dining hall nor anywhere in, you know, Ram Cafe or anything like that. But we're definitely, they're definitely open to those um, suggestions from students. What do you think Fordham should be doing going forward? owning up to their word that they want to be serving a diverse student population because at the moment Muslim students aren't able to eat in the dining hall or at least they have very limited options. They have prepackaged food which Deming Yan himself told me was costly. So the fact that students have to pay more just to be able to eat what they'd like to because of their faith is absurd to me and I think that people should be able to eat just what they want at a campus where they, they're supposed to call that their home and if they can't eat that then how are they supposed to ever be comfortable here, completely comfortable. Fordham has to consider the position they've taken by employing Aramark because of the situation that happened at NYU. Aramark didn't handle what they should have handled as seriously. Um, Just the fact that it was even on the menu, the watermelon water is insane to me, and I think that Fordham needs to take a second look at why they're still choosing Aramark over maybe limited options, but there's still options, and why they're still choosing Aramark over these other options. Thanks for joining us, Michelle. Thank you for having me. Joining me now is Catherine Galliford. Thanks for joining us. Hi, yeah, thanks for having me. So, Catherine, why are you here today? Uh, I'm here today to discuss my article in the recent edition for The Observer. It's about the FDA's ban on gay men donating blood within a 12-month period if they've had uh, sex with another man. So can you talk about the background of your piece and why the FDA is limiting blood donations from gay men? Sure. So um, gay or bisexual men or men who have ever had sex with another man are considered extra high risk for becoming HIV positive beginning in the 1980s during the AIDS crisis. And so there are a few cases in the early 1980s of people receiving blood transfusions from people who were HIV positive because it was really difficult to test for that back then. And so to kind of cover their bases, the FDA banned all MSM or like gay or bisexual men from donating blood. In more recent years, they've revised the ban to 12 months, not a lifetime ban. So this ban is specifically only for gay men, right? Right. Um, Or any women who have had sex with a gay or bisexual man within 12 months. Talk about why this has persisted to this day. Why has this provision not been stripped out of the FDA's regulations? Well, so as we... As our medical technology develops, it's actually now incredibly easy to test for HIV or AIDS within like a 99.9% accuracy within about a fortnight of possible infection. But I think that a lot of the reason why the ban still exists today without so much medical backup is the stigma around HIV or AIDS or even just gay or bisexual men and the sex that they have. Um, And I think it's rooted more in homophobia than science. I understand the fear and the stigma back in the 1980s, but now, since we can detect it and all blood that is donated goes through these really rigorous tests, there's no reason for the ban, especially 
being as long as it is for 12 months when you can test it within at least a month. So really the provision is there mostly because of the historical reality of AIDS, but not in any way based in. No, I don't think so. What do you think should be done about this? I think that the ban should be taken down, should be um, revised at least to a period of one month ban rather than a 12 month ban. Um, especially because there are so many Americans that are in need of blood transfusions and the blood li- or the shelf life for blood is so short and we don't really have a lot of people donating blood. And the population of gay and bisexual men in America is at least 4 million, it's estimated to be. And the number of people who need donations annually is about 4 million. And so the fact that we're taking away this entire population because of really stigma um, is unacceptable to me. I think that it's important for these people that need blood to receive it and for us to allow people who have healthy blood to be screened through the same amount of tests as other people who aren't gay or bisexual men. So you and I are college students, as are most of the listeners of this podcast. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us why it matters to us as college kids? Sure. Well, I mean, the Observer actually did an interesting poll, I think, within the last couple of Valentine's Days about the percentage of LGBT students in Fordham, and it's relatively high. We live in New York City, where some of the highest populations of deaths of people living with HIV or AIDS existed, and I think that for a lot of Fordham students, and especially LGBT Fordham students living in New York, where we have all these kind of reminders of the men and women who died of HIV or AIDS, it's hard to live with the legacy, and then to know that, like, some of our students at Fordham, when we have our blood drives that the president puts on, to be unable to donate. And a lot of people don't even, like a lot of gay or bisexual men don't know that they can't donate until the time arises. Um, And so I think as students and as people, you know, studying medicine or wanting to become doctors, it's important to be aware of where stigma meets science and how we should advocate more to overcome that. So really, this is just a way of othering a lot of the students who go here. Oh yeah, absolutely, I think so. And I think we should be really conscious of that because Fordham is a pretty, at least Lincoln Center is a pretty liberal campus, I find. And I think we're more accepting than maybe other campuses of our LGBT populations. And so I think that we're a good hub to start pushing back against this ban. How would you recommend that we start pushing back against it? I think being more vocal about it. I think educating people on the reality with living with HIV or AIDS today because it's so different than what it was during the 80s and the 90s where it was considered pretty much a death sentence if you were diagnosed with HIV or AIDS and so today our developments have allowed it to not be a death sentence anymore and a lot of people to be able to healthily live even in the early stages of being infected you can kind of slow the process so you're still healthy and able to even to donate blood. Education and awareness is important. I think knowing your rights as someone being able to donate blood is important and I think again people who are becoming um, involved in politics or science fields, medical fields, being able to be that sort of vocal change is important. And I think the stigma exists for a lot of people who are alive during the AIDS crisis. And so educating them is important too. Do you have any final thoughts? I think so. um, LGBT History Month just ended. And for LGBT Americans, the AIDS crisis is such a big, um, I want to say like gap in our culture and our history because we basically lost a generation of gay and bisexual men in the 80s and 90s. And so I think remembering what happened and recognizing those men and women, because um, the AIDS crisis also really affected sex workers or intravenous drug users, and not allowing the stigma that really took their lives, because the stigma around like 
um, HIV or AIDS was considered like the gay plague. And I think that allowed for like the Reagan administration and other government agencies to kind of ignore it. And I think that killed millions of Americans. So if we do better at fighting back against the stigma and educating ourselves and educating our grandparents or our parents, that'll go a long way. Thank you so much for coming on. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. This has been Retrospect. I'm Kevin Christopher Robles. We'll see you next time.